Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good evening, good evening to you. Do 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 do. Good evening, good evening to you. You. Good evening, good evening to you. You. Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope you've been having a great and wonderful day. It is another Wednesday. And as promised, we are going to finish the last poem from last night out of the book, The Black Poets, a new anthology edited by Dudley Randall. So we will cover that first. And then tonight we're going to be looking at Zora Neale Hurston and Jesse Jackson, which is going to lead us into the first chapter of this book series, What is the Civil Rights Movement? A lot of people have their own ideas about what the civil rights movement is, but this uh, short chapter book is going to put some things in perspective. And again, this comes from the uh, the same series of books. As I said, they have lots of different ones. We finished up this one earlier in the month. What is the Harlem Renaissance? And now we are on to what is the civil rights movement? And it's got lots of wonderful photographs in the back. And we'll get to those hopefully by reading this book every night until the end of the month. So we got a couple of days in this one and I'm gonna make sure and try to uh, measure the chapters out so that we finish it uh, before the month is out. And we know that, hey, the time is rolling. It is the 23rd. So let's start with our poem tonight. And that is, this one is written by, make sure I have it right. This one is written by Michael Harper, who is still living, born in 1938. And it is called The Primitive. Taken from the shores of Mother Africa, the savages they thought we were, they being the real savages to save us from what? Our happiness? our love, each other, their Bible for our land, introduction to economics, Christianized us, raped our minds with TV and straight hair, Reader's Digest and bleaching creams, Tarzan and Jungle Jim, used cars and used homes, reefers and napalm, European history and promises, those alien concepts of whiteness, the being of what is not against our nature, this weapon called civilization. They brought us here to drive us mad like them. Selah, Selah, Selah. 
And it doesn't have the date on this poem, but I mean, let's just say it was written in the 60s, probably the 70s. It's called The Primitive again. So let's hop into The Fierce 44, Black Americans Who Shook Up the World. Again, this book is Black Americans, not necessarily African Americans. So there are all kinds of people um, who identify as Black in this particular book. So tonight we are looking at, as I said, we're going to look at Zora Neale Hurston and Jesse Jackson. Why is Zora Neale Hurston included? Because she inspired pride in Southern Black culture. And I really love this visual rendering of Zora. So let's take a look a bit at her background. Zora Neale Hurston is a novelist, writer, who lived from 1891 to 1960. Zora Neale Hurston is now recognized as one of the South's most famous and eloquent writers. But it took a long time for her talent to be recognized. She grew up in Eatonville, Florida, the first all-Black incorporated town in the country where her father was one of the first mayors. Her mother, a Sunday school teacher, who encouraged her children to be ambitious, died when Hurston was only 13. She didn't get along with her stepmother and eventually joined a group of traveling performers as a maid. She finally finished high school in her 20s before going on to get degrees from Howard University in Washington, D.C. and Barnard College in New York City where she studied anthropology. In New York, Hurston became a central figure in the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s and pursued a career as a writer and researcher who studied the folklore of Southern Blacks. The author of four novels, including the now celebrated Their Eyes Were Watching God, which was my introduction to her work, and the autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road, she also wrote short stories, essays, and plays. Unlike other writers, Hurston focused on the experience of Black women and wrote the way Black people in the South actually spoke. Or I would say in, in certain particular regions that Black people actually spoke. Hurston never made much money from her writing. When she died, her neighbors in Fort Pierce, Florida, couldn't afford a headstone, so they buried her in an unmarked grave. Alice Walker, who later wrote The Color Purple, found her grave in 1972 and paid for a marker. Now everyone recognizes Hurston as an important author who told the story of country folk. Yeah, I don't even want to talk about how many gifted, talented people we run into with that story of dying either penniless or dying unrecognized or um, people not being able to give you a proper burial, even though you made a significant contribution to the world. Uh, which is why I always say, do as much as you can to prepare your own life to be recognized and honored. So whether that is your trust, whether that is your will, whether that is life insurance, health insurance, um, expressing very specifically what you want done with your things, your belongings. Um, if you run things like social media, like I run a lot of pages making sure you have backup people, making sure you have admins besides yourself 
so that if anything happens or anything goes down, people can continue your legacy and your work. So that's just a little, that was free 99. All right. Jesse Jackson, moving right on. Jesse Jackson, civil rights activist, politician who is still alive uh, and is recovering from COVID, born in 1941. And why is he in here? The writer says, because he kept hope alive and made the White House a realistic goal for black people. Now I have my feelings about the White House and that whole presidential office that is really um, in order to take on that role, you basically have to pledge to uphold and uplift white supremacy, even if you're a black person. But nevertheless, he made it a possibility, made it a realistic goal for some to go to that office. So let's learn a little bit more about Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson's are the biggest shoulders that Barack Obama stands on. Jackson laid the foundation for electing a black president, one of the signature achievements of the 21st century. I would also say he also stands on the shoulders of Shirley Chisholm. Let's not forget her either. The groundwork began with Jackson's decision to run for president himself in 1984, widely seen then as more symbolic than practical. Black leaders had discussed for years what it would take to seriously compete for the highest office in the land. After Harold Washington was elected Chicago's first black mayor in 1983, and with concern mounting about the negative impact of Ronald Reagan's presidency on black Americans, some people thought it was time. Jackson was one of the greatest political orators in American history. His ability to inspire farmers and factory workers, maids who take the bus, and teenagers growing up in housing projects was unmatched. In 1984, Jackson ran for president and won five Democratic primaries and caucuses on a tiny budget. With his second presidential campaign in 1988, he established himself as the leader of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He won 11 primaries and caucuses and finished as runner-up to Democratic nominee Michael Dukakis. Before Jackson's campaigns, Black campaign workers were largely put into small roles focusing on urban issues. <clears throat> Jackson helped increase Black participation in all jobs in politics. The result was more field operatives, strategists, and fundraisers all and candidates for a wider range of offices than ever before. He deserves credit for his civil rights activism in the Deep South and later on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley. But Jackson's most notable achievement was demonstrating that sending an African-American to the Oval Office was an attainable dream. Which leads us into our final read that we're starting tonight which is, what is the civil rights movement? <laughs> this was written in memory of John Lewis and our ancestors for their strength, dignity, and humanity, and for the example they set for future generations. What is the civil rights movement? One afternoon in March, 1955, a 15-year-old by the name of Claudette Colvin boarded a public bus for home. 
A deep brown-skinned girl with large dark eyes and black-rimmed glasses, Claudette was a high school student in Montgomery, Alabama. On the bus, Claudette and three friends took seats in a row for black passengers. And love the illustration there is Claudette leading the pack. At the time, public buses in the South were segregated by race. Racial segregation meant keeping black people separated from white people. In Alabama, white passengers sat in the front rows marked by a sign that read white. Passengers of color had to take seats in rows behind the sign. If more white people boarded the bus after the white area was full, black passengers who had seats were forced to give them up. That's what happened to Claudette and her friends when a young white woman boarded the bus on their trip home. The other girls gave up their seats, but Claudette did not. Just for that, Claudette was arrested. She was locked up in an adult jail cell. I can still vividly hear the click of those keys, she later said. Now let me give you another free 99 tip. <laughs> free 99. Anytime someone says, it's not about race, and I don't see color, put up a picture for them of this time period where things were literally labeled by color. We didn't start this. We didn't create the distinctions. They did. That was free 99. What made a teenage girl act so bravely? At school, Claudette had learned about Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. Both African-American women had fought for years against the injustice of slavery. Because guess what? When you start learning about your own history and you start learning about the people that actually stood up against injustice, hmm, it starts to motivate you to kind of want to do the same thing. Claudette believes that staying in her seat was doing what they would have wanted her to do. She said, it felt as though Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder and Sojourner's Truth's hands were pushing me down on the other shoulder. I felt inspired by these women because my teacher taught us about them in so much detail. I wasn't frightened, but disappointed and angry because I knew I was sitting in the right seat. One of the things that black Americans talk about oftentimes is that whatever standard is set, the bar continues to be moved. I would say this is a really good example of that, right? They had two sections marked off. One was supposedly the white section and the other was supposedly the black section. But when the white section got full, guess what? There was no more black section. That got taken over too. Thank you, Claudette Colvin. Ida B. Wells. There's lovely Ida B. behind me, in case you don't know who that is in the painting. There she is, there she is. She is my uh, personal daily inspiration. Ida B. lived from 1862 to 1931. Like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells was an early activist for African-American civil rights. An activist is someone who takes action for a cause they believe in. Wells was a black journalist from the South. Her best known writing was about the horrors of lynching. Lynching is when a mob or group of people commits murder. Many black people were lynched across the South, South for false crimes. Wells wrote about these evil killings for audiences around the world. White people where she lived in Memphis, Tennessee, 
were so angry about her work that they burned down her office and chased her out of town. But she didn't give up. She worked for justice her entire life. In 1909, she helped create the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The NAACP helped plan many civil rights protests and still exists today. On that day, Claudette took a stand for civil rights. Civil rights are protections promised to all citizens of the United States of America, like the right to vote or the right to an education. Big changes can start with the bravery of a single person. Claudette was one of many brave people who would work together for the three great promises of America, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Another little free 99 fact for you, that word happiness used to be <clears throat> the pursuit of property. I'll let you figure it out. Chapter one, a troubled past. When people talk about the civil rights movement, they usually mean the period in the 1950s and 60s when African-Americans fought for the same rights that white people already had. Segregation was the worst in the South, or so they say. Besides having to sit in separate rows in buses, black people went to separate schools, drank from separate water fountains, stayed in separate hotels, lived in separate neighborhoods, and were not allowed to vote. The United States Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, but when it was written in 1776, one out of every five people was enslaved. They had been kidnapped from Africa and sold to white Americans like property. In the Southern states, white people depended on slave labor to run their farms and plantations, but many Northern states wanted to make slavery illegal. Rather than agree to this in 1860, 11 Southern states began to break away. In 1861, they formed their own new country, the Confederate States of America. It included Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, Arkansas, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. The border states of Kentucky and Missouri had divided loyalties. The North wanted the states to stay united. This led to the Civil War. When it ended in 1865, the South had lost and slavery in the United States was over, so we thought. The following year saw the first Civil Rights Act. It said all people born in the United States were considered U.S. citizens. As citizens, black people now had the right to full and equal benefit of all laws as enjoyed by white citizens. Quote, in 1870, a new Civil Rights Act attempted to support black men's right to vote as granted by the 15th Amendment. Now, this was men's right to vote, not women's. Even so, African-Americans continued to face discrimination. Discrimination means they were treated differently because of the color of their skin. The Southern states created new laws that denied African-Americans their rights. These were called the Black Codes and also the Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow was a character in music shows that had made fun of black people. White actors would darken their faces with burnt cork and dress in rags. Jim Crow was clumsy and not very smart. He was meant to insult black people. Jim Crow laws were used to make black people second-class citizens. 
Second-class citizens are those who are not given equal rights. Jim Crow laws made it hard for black citizens to lead a decent life. White people would not sell farmland to black people or allow them to attend good schools. African-Americans were prevented from voting so they could not elect people who would fight on their behalf. And even when African-Americans assembled themselves to build their own schools and their own places of worship and gather their own resources together, there were several incidences where white mobs would literally burn the towns to the ground. Many African-Americans moved to the North or out West for a better life from 1915 to 1970. Around 6 million black people migrated from the South. They still faced racism and unfairness, but life was harder for those who remained. Now I want you to understand that you're talking about people who have been born in this country, whose ancestors have plowed the fields of this country, whose ancestors have literally given their blood, their sweat, and their tears for this country. But yet, black people had to get up and move within their own country, like they were foreigners in a strange land. Racism, though, was not restricted to the South. Even the Supreme Court ignored the rights of black citizens. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the nation. What it says is the law remains the law. In 1896, a case went before the Supreme Court, and that case was called Plessy versus Ferguson. Homer Plessy was a black activist who challenged a new law in Louisiana that blocked people of color from riding in white train cars. This law took away freedoms Plessy had grown up with during Reconstruction. With his fair skin color, he was able to buy a ticket for the white car, but a train conductor threw him out. Plessy and a local civil rights group filed a legal complaint. Now, after slavery ended, some white men in the South created a group called the Ku Klux Klan. It's also known as the KKK or the Klan. These members, as we know, believe in pseudo white supremacy. They think that white people are superior to black people. There are about 300,000 Klan members in the United States today. And I would say that's probably on the lower end and that's probably the ones we know about. In the past, the Klan often attacked and murdered black people and they would wear white robes and pointed white hoods that covered their faces during lynchings. That way no one could tell who had committed the crime. They attracted members in both the North and the South, but not all white people were Klansmen, just too many. (laughs) Some, including Southerners, believed black people should be treated as equals, but it was not always safe for them to say so. Some brave people began to stand up for themselves. No amount of fear could stop them from fighting for their civil rights. Now back to this Homer Plessy case. The Supreme Court judges said that Homer Plessy did not have the right to sit in the white car. They said segregation was legal as long as both white people and people of color, black people, were given separate but equal accommodations. For trains, accommodations would mean the seats and access to food in a bathroom. While accommodations were indeed kept separate, they were far from equal, particularly in the South. And yet for the next 60 years, the separate but equal edict and verdict was the law of the land. So an entire generation 
probably we could say one or two, lived under the tyranny of separate but equal. Because this country lied. <laughs> There's no way in the world that the facilities that they had during that time were anywhere close to separate or equal. And again, that's time that we cannot get back. That is the conclusion of my reading for tonight. If you have something to say about tonight's reading, any part of tonight's reading, feel free to join us over on IG where we are live. And if you want to join the live conversation, you have to go on IG. Our IG page is at Daring Dialogues, all one word. If you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention tonight. Lord willing, we will be back on tomorrow with the next installment of Black History 365. Have a great night.